Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Sexual assaults on America's college campuses are far too common and have been getting more attention in recent years. The cases that seem to get the most attention is when a high-profile college athlete is involved. Just this week, more details emerged publicly about Baylor University football players whose regents indicated 17 women reported domestic or sexual assaults involving 19 football players since 2011. In his latest book, Missoula, Rape and the Justice System in a College Town, best-selling author John Krakauer writes about a similar situation. Krakauer was in the Mid-State recently and speaks with us on Smart Talk. John Krakauer, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. We're going to talk mostly uh, during our time with you about uh, your latest book, your 2015 release, uh, Mizzola, Rape and Justice System in a College Town, talking about sexual assault on college campuses. I don't know whether Mizzola, the University of Montana, is typical, but we do know that there are a lot of college campuses across this country where sexual assault happens way too often. First of all, what prompted you to write the book? Oh, four or five years ago, I learned that a young woman uh, who, who I've known her whole life, very close to her, she's like a daughter to me and my wife, uh, she, I learned uh, she'd been sexually assaulted in her early teens. That had been that was like a decade earlier. Uh, high achiever, seemed to be on the fast track to success, and then she crashed and burned, ended up in rehab. Uh, it turned out these she'd been sexually assaulted, and she it had really you know had this huge impact on her life. And I was had no idea she'd been assaulted. I knew nothing about uh, how traumatic sexual assault was. So I set out to find out. And I'm an investigative journalist, so I started investigating. And that led me to, you know, any number. I could have investigated any town in the country, just about. Missoula is a typical town, but it had an interesting series of assaults over a few three-year period. And th- that just, by chance, became the subject of the book. Now, you touched on it with your answer there, but why did you decide on Missoula and the University of Montana? It was it was kind of chance. It's not, Missoula's a nice place. I like it. I went up, I heard that there was a, a sentencing hearing for a, a football player who had uh, made a plea deal. He'd sexually assaulted his best friend. They'd been best friends since kindergarten and sounded interesting. So I went to this hearing, didn't know if it would pan out. And within minutes, I was riveted. It was the first time I'd seen and been in the courtroom for a sexual assault case and saw the way this guy, you understand, for this plea deal had had to confess to to uh, raping his best friend when she was asleep. And in court, all of a sudden, his defense attorneys claiming it was consensual. I mean, all this stuff that was unbelievable. And this the the survivor, the woman who'd been raped, stood up to all the attacks, and she was amazing. She was so inspiring that I decided there, then and there that I could write a book around this single person. Uh, I spoke to her. Eventually, you know, we agreed to, you know, I wanted to caution before she jumped in. She wanted to say, right away, you can do this. But I wanted her to really think about the consequences. Uh, and then once I started looking into and we decided to do this book, only then did I realize it's not just this one case. It's a series of assaults over this a multi-year period that are, you know, it's, it speaks to a huge problem. Well, it turns out it was a huge problem, but Missoula is actually better than most places. The college is better, the town's better in it way it handles sexual, handles sexual assault, yet it was still horrifying. And so Missoula became the perfect subject for the book. It's, you know, one place over a period of years, a better-than-average town that can represent the problem we have throughout the nation. All right, before we get on to the book and Mazzola, the cases that you wrote about, as you said, you're an investigative journalist, and you looked into this before you decided on 
Missoula and the University of Montana. What did you find? What opened your eyes? What opened my eyes was the fact that, A, 85% of rapes are done by acquaintances. This is a huge problem. That 97% of the rapists in this country get away with it scot-free. That only 3% of rapes are is the perpetrator ever incarcerated. Uh, that how no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to think about it. That, you know, I I was so ignorant. I was ashamed about how little I knew about it. And my ignorance was, you know, exists across the country. And so that was shocking to me that this is the trauma from sexual assault is so different than other kinds of trauma. It can have lifelong, often has lifelong implications. Um, and yet no one, we all want to pretend this problem doesn't exist. And not only pretend there's this active you know, movement out there of deniers denying that it's a problem. It's just rape hysteria caused by this feminist cabal. I mean, that's that's laughable. This is it affects every family. You know, my own family. Once they heard what the book was about, they two of them came forward and said, "Oh yeah, by the way, I was sexually assaulted too." I mean, it's just shocking. All these family friends, I've friends I've had since I was very young, came forward and said. Thank you for doing this. You know, by the way, I too. I mean, it's you. Every rock you turn over, you find you know another rapist. So this is a, a big problem that that is not being taken seriously. Why not? I mean, why don't we talk about it? And when we do, why don't we? And my we, I'm talking about uh, not a majority of the country, but a number of people across this country in our society. Why don't we take it seriously? Uh, that's a good question. I, and part of it is our, you know, why don't we have sex education? Sex is this scary subject, is, uh, particularly to men. Uh, female sexuality is really threatening. It's, and it's not new. I mean, it's not a rape epidemic. This is a problem that has existed for centuries, for millennia, since the birth of civilization. You know, so uh, and it's also there's this weird thing that if you can, you know, rape is scary. But if you can deny that it's really a problem, it makes us all feel better. You know, if if you're a uh, f- hero of your local football team is accused of rape, it's much easier to say no way, you know, than to admit that your hero is this predator and then think, my God, the world is a scary place. We don't want the world to be a scary place. So it's much easier to pretend the problem doesn't exist. All right. So let's talk about uh, the people that you wrote about in the book. Uh, talk about these cases and about the way that the, the women uh, were treated when they attempted to file reports. Uh, it's so common. Uh, the first case was a young woman, and she asked me to use her real name in the book, and I'll use it here, Allison Hugot, the courageous woman at this hearing. And, uh, you know, she had gone to college in a different town, came back to Missoula, her hometown, and went to a party uh, right before school started where this football player was. And, you know, it's just all her friends, her best friends, and they'd been drinking, and she uh, didn't want to drive home drunk, so she was offered a couch to sleep on, and she slept on it. And, and at the wee hours of the morning, she woke up being raped by her best friend. So, and she was, you know, she was devastated. Um, she also, like most rapists or most victims, most survivors, you know, it was like, my God, how, what could I have done to – you were sound asleep. You didn't do anything, her best friend told her. But there's all this self-doubt. How could my best friend have done this? So she, she was angry, and uh, a day later, her best friend talked her into getting a tape recorder. 
and trying to get a confession from this guy. And she did that. At first, he denied it. And she said, what are you talking about? Not only did he rape her, once, once he, he left, she was feared for her life because she's a small woman and he's huge. So she took off running down the alley to try to escape and found he was chasing her, yelling at her, um, you know, pawing at her. So you know, this isn't, he didn't just rape her. He then tried to chase her down. And now in the, in the day later, he's saying, well, you know, it was consensual. We were making out. Just No, we weren't. And so she finally got him to confess, um, and she had this confession, and, and he didn't know it. It was secret. But she, she told him, look, Bo, Bo, Bo Donaldson was his name. I don't want to ruin your life, uh, but, you know, you have to promise me you'll get uh, therapy. You'll get, you know, treat your alcohol problems, your drug problems. Um, she didn't want to go to the authorities. She didn't even tell her own father. The only person she told was her mother and her sister. And for 15 months, she pretended it was no problem, and she got over it. And then she ran into him at a bar in Missoula, and he taunted her. And it just angered her so much, she went to the cops. And they, the cops then—she couldn't use that recording. It was illegally done. So the cops got two more confessions. Um, so it's—you know, he doesn't have—he's already confessed to this. Um, and then uh, so she then says, this is going to be a simple deal. You know, we'll get a plea deal. He'll be put away. Well, it was—it's never a simple deal. She learned that as, as a survivor, as a victim, it's not her choice whether the prosecutor or not, whether to make a plea deal. It's all out of her hands. And this is a football-crazy town. And he's on this—football players are heroes. And no one wanted—they're all like, well, we can't go to trial because this is Missoula. And, you know, no football player will ever be convicted in this town, which is probably true. So she had all these tough choices. The, the plea deal went on for months. Finally, you know, she did this sentencing hearing and, and she stood up to this attorney. They were asking for, oh, you know, Bo's a nice guy. It's a mistake. Don't ruin his life. You just give him probation. Um, and luckily, they had a judge, not coincidentally. She was a woman. She was a really good judge. And she said, no, this is a horrible betrayal. A best friend being raped by her childhood friend. Um, you can't get a slap on the wrist. You know, you're going to prison. Um, and, you know, he fought it tooth and nail the whole way. He finally he got a uh, 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 30-year sentence, 20 years suspended, so it's a 10-year sentence. Turns out, you know, he's eligible for, for, for parole in two and a half years. He's out now. I mean, he was out about before, about around the same time the book was published. So, all I mean, that shows you how it happened. So, anyway, that was one case. It turned out well in that he went to prison. He's registered as a sex offender. He's now out of prison. It's not like Allison is better. She's still dealing with this every day. She had huge post-traumatic stress. Every time she'd go to bed, she'd look under the bed six times. Every time she'd go to take a shower, she'd pull back the shower curtain six times. She was really messed up from this. Um, that was the first case. The other cases didn't turn out nearly as well. I mean, I could talk for hours about that. Well, let's you know briefly talk about those other cases. An- another case was the star quarterback, Jordan Johnson, um, who uh, raped, allegedly raped, I'm convinced he raped, I believe he raped uh, a young woman who he was uh, interested in. They'd been dating. They'd never had sex. She came over. She invited him over to her apartment to watch TV. Um, He started making out. They both did. That was fine with her. But then he, when she sort of said, no, enough, he got mad and just flipped her over and and raped her too. And she was so freaked out. Her roommate is sitting right outside the door playing a video game. Um, She is so freaked out when the quarterback gets up to go to the bathroom, you know, within a minute of raping her, she immediately sends a text to her roommate, oh, my God, I think I was just raped. You know, I, I, I said no, but he pushed and pushed. You know, she's hysterical. She sends this text, what should I do? And he says, get out of there now. Um, and she's, but she's traumatized. She, 
in t- typical of, of sexual assault victims who are traumatized. She wasn't thinking clearly. She knew she wanted this jerk out of her apartment, so she drove him home to get him out of there. Great. All this is fine. She eventually goes to the police and the university uh, to file a complaint. And, of course, during her criminal trial, the first thing the defense attorney says is, well, when you texted your roommate, you didn't say, I was raped. You said, oh, my God, I think I was just raped. What, you don't know you were raped? Doesn't sound like you were raped. Why did you drive your rapist home? Well, it turns out this kind of behavior isn't strange at all. It's absolutely typical. Uh, the brain chemistry changes in that kind of trauma. You're not thinking clearly. Women do not want to believe they were just raped by a friend. This is, again, a friend of hers. So it's like rather than face, you know, my best friend raped me, that makes the world a really dangerous place. It's easier to go, how could this have happened? Did that really happen? That's a typical response for for a person who's been raped. And juries need to be educated about that. Judges need to be educated about that. They're not, unfortunately. So, you know, in this long trial, this is the most popular guy in Montana. Huge attention. It was written about in, uh, in the New York Times. He was on ESPN. A lot of attention. Well, the jury acquitted him. He was found not guilty. I interviewed one of the jurors afterwards and I said, you know, what what happened? You know, I was there. It sounded like it was a slam dunk. Well, we thought he probably did it. But in Montana, not only do you have to prove there was not consent to get raped, you have to prove that the rapist knew there wasn't consent, which is almost impossible to prove. And A is the most football, popular football player in the state. So, you know, forget about it. There wasn't going to be a conviction. Um, See, I, you know, I wonder, do these guys know that if someone's unconscious or they say no in the middle of something, that that's a rape? That's a good question. And the way to answer that is these are very entitled football players. They're used to women basically groupies, basically women throwing themselves. They're, they're used to, well, women, I'm a god. You know, they, they're lucky to have me. And in both these cases, I think, there have been studies that shown where, they, where, where academics, scientists have interviewed rapists. And if you, if you ask them, have you raped anyone, they'll say, of course not. But then you start talking to them and they describe the things they do of getting women drunk till they pass out and having sex with them. And they admit they do all those things. These guys knew, Bo Donaldson knew that Allison Hewitt was sound asleep unconscious when he raped her. Um, Jordan Johnson knew that uh, the woman he raped did not consent. She was trying to push him off. She was pushing him away. He knew that. But I don't think he really thought of it as rape because he's a star quarterback and they don't rape people. You know, women throw themselves. So absolutely, they should have known without a doubt that this is rape. They can claim that, and they do claim that it wasn't. In both cases, even after Bo Donaldson, even after confessing it repeatedly, he still in court, you know, said, well, it was consensual. And his friends, he told all his friends it was consensual and that she had wanted to do it. So he knew he was lying on some level, but he couldn't really face the fact, me? I'm a football star. I'm not a rapist. I don't rape people. Forget it. I didn't rape you. That's basically the attitude of both these guys. And it's a common attitude for many, many rapists. Um, you know, they, frat boys who every weekend set out, you know, to lure these this young prey to their frat houses and very deliberately and methodically figure out ways to get them drunk and unconscious. They have what what they don't call the rape room, but it is known as the rape room, a special room where people don't sleep, where that's the room where after you've gotten her drunk, you take her upstairs and have sex with this unconscious woman. Well, if you don't know that's rape, you know, there's a huge problem in this country. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
All right, welcome back to Smart Talk. We're speaking with the John Krakauer, who is the author. His latest book is Missoula, Rape, and the Justice System in a College Town. Before we move on to how the University of Montana handled this case, or the cases that uh, you describe, um, what is with the college football culture? I mean, we've heard that term here in Pennsylvania after Penn State and Jerry Sandusky uh, during the same time period that uh, you write about here. But what is with the culture? I mean, the University of Montana is not exactly a football factory as we think of it. I'm a college football fan. There are millions of them across America. But what is with this culture? Well, you got to understand that Missoula is not a powerhouse football program in the country. But in Montana, it is. You know, in big, the Big Sky Conference, which is Division One, second tier. Uh, you know, the University of Montana football team is the nearest thing Montana has to a pro football franchise. So in this town, in this community, it's everything. So it is a huge thing. Um, and football, you know, why why are why is the coach at Penn State or almost anywhere paid much more than university president? I mean, it's in a town like uh, Tallahassee, Florida State. You know. I looked into the Jameis Winston case, who is – he's absolutely guilty. He's the number one draft pick. He's gotten away without even a slap on the wrist. And yeah, that, just to point out that he was the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback for Florida State that was accused of rape. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of questions about that case. Right. And, and so, you know, it, that Tallahassee is a perfect example. Foot, it's so football crazy. The Not only the university police, but the city police are in the pocket of the athletic director. I mean, there was no investigation by either. I mean, it's just, you know, that's the problem is that we f- football is such a big business and it's so much our religion that, you know, we're not going to let some, you know, and so it's much easier to believe, oh, these women, you can't believe these women. You know, they're just out for attention. That's, I love that. That's the excuse. They want attention. Who wants attention, that kind of attention? Nobody except in, in, for the, you know, it's the, the rape myths. These myths, they're, they, they're prevalent. They're everywhere. We all, many of us have them. We even don't, aren't even aware we have these. So how many of us, you know, when, when you hear about a woman being sexually assaulted, you go, my God, what was she doing? You know, what was she wearing? What? Why was she out at night at that place? What was she why thinking? Why was she drinking? It's the first thing we 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 blame her. We don't say what was that jerk doing. You know, we don't think like that. It's the only crime where the victim is the one who's immediately under suspicion first. And you know, that's the police act that way. Prosecutors, we all do. In Missoula, one of the most shocking things was the prosecutor's office. You know, over a four-year period, they prosecuted 14 cases out of hundreds. Um, they dismissed anything that wasn't a slam dunk because the prosecutor didn't want to didn't want anything to blemish her record. She liked to believe that you know I have a 99 percent uh, success rate in court. So you know the, no, it's they they tell it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Well, you've been drinking. You know we'll never be able to convince the jury. I believe you were raped, but we'll never be able to convince the jury. So sorry, we're not going to prosecute your case. That is that is so sad. That happens everywhere, over and over and over again. Um, and you know it is the criminal justice system is woefully inadequate for handling uh, assigning responsibility in rape cases it is it is it is terrible um, universities are a little better but they too are not very good and um, there's all kinds of reasons for that too but in Missoula you know the university system was in some ways as bad almost as bad as the criminal prosecution uh, criminal justice system. Well, in what way? Let's talk about that. Well, How so the, the university responded. So Jordan Johnson in that case he was you know went through a criminal trial uh, and he was found not guilty. He also was uh, – the university also investigated and found him guilty by the dean. He appealed that. The vice president 
found him guilty. He appealed to a student uh, tribunal of faculty and staff, a university court. They found him guilty, ordered him expelled. The president signed off and said, I see nothing wrong with the investigation. You, quarterback Jordan Johnson, are expelled. I'm sorry. Well, funny thing, he didn't go away. He was playing football again the next year. And it turned out in, in top secret, they appealed to the commissioner of higher education in Montana, and he... Uh, vacated it and let him walk. I mean, in the end, uh, Johnson, it was all made to go away. And that and that would not have happened if he was not the most popular athlete in the state. And, a foot- and I've for the last three years, I've had a, a freedom of information suit in Montana. I won at the district court, appealed to the Supreme Court, it's been kicked back. So for I'm still in the courts trying to find out why the commissioner on what grounds overturned that expulsion. And they're fighting tooth and nail. They're using a federal law called FERPL, the Federal Education Rights and Privacy Act, which was intended to protect protect academic records. And every university in the country almost uses it instead to uh, hide, to to use as an excuse not to reveal what's going on with sexual assaults on their campuses. Uh, Cynics call it the Federal Rape Protection Act rather than the Federal Federal, uh, Education Rights and, and Privacy Act. So FERPA, which is a horrible thing, you know, makes it almost impossible to find out what's going on at universities. Uh, the administrators hide behind it. The perpetrators hide behind it. Um, so, you know, universities, uh, it, it's, a, it's a grab bag. Some universities do a good job of, of handling sexual assaults. Most do not. There's not uniform standards. Sometimes they're kangaroo courts. Sometimes they're, they're very good. Um, but until there's some unified standard, you know, you, you can't no one can count on finding justice at a university now either. Well, let's talk about that because universities, there is a law that they are to report crimes. And there are campuses where there are zero sexual assaults reported. Is that what you found? Oh, if, if I saw a school with zero sexual reports, I would stay a million miles away from that school. Sexual assaults happen at every campus. Religious schools, state schools, private schools, and the best research tells us that approximately at least one in five and probably closer to one in four women in college are sexually assaulted. So if you're hearing zero, that school has a huge problem with covering up a real problem. Uh, So, you know... I don't believe that. What's more, when you see, you know, you don't know what to think, but the higher reporting rates are a good sign. It shows that they are, you know, really trying to find out what's going on and and having some measure of transparency. Um, It still doesn't mean they know how to deal with it. It's, you know, it's, schools can't, uh, can't send anyone to prison. They can't make them register as a sex offender. All they can do basically is expel a rapist. And they're, but they're really reluctant to do that because, you know, it, it's, a, it's a can of worms for them. They don't want it to, the blemish on the reputation. They don't want to be sued by the guy they accuse of raping this woman. That's a now, there's this huge pushback now where all these guys, most of whom I think really are guilty of rape, are hiring attorneys. They're suing the schools, and the schools inevitably settle. Uh, often for a lot of money because they don't want the the public shame. The, the Jordan Johnson, the quarterback, who I believe is guilty of this raping this woman, he he threatened to sue the University of Montana in in a secret settlement. They paid him a quarter million dollars to go away. So not only did he get away with rape, he got a quarter million dollars in the bargain. And the university won't talk about it. They still won't even admit that there actually was uh, a, a disciplinary proceeding. They just they won't say why they gave him the quarter million dollars. That's how screwed up this whole system is. Let's go back to Allison. You said that uh, you gave her an opportunity to not do this, to, to mm-hmm. talk about the, her experience in the book. I wonder, though, you know, how many women out there 
wants reading your book or knowing the reputation on campus of, you know, what you have to do to go through, number one, the administration, then the justice system, how many just say, you know what, I'm going to live with it because it's too much of a hassle and he's probably going to get away with it? Well, I think most women, about 80, 85 percent of women think like that. What's amazing to me, that the tide is starting to turn. People, women like Allison, Allison eventually decided to, to come out and go to the police and quit keeping a secret because she realized, oh, my God, I bet he is doing this to other women. And I would kill myself, is what she said, if I found out that he had raped someone else because I was quiet. So she decided to come forward. The more women come forward, the more other women come forward. That's been going on for five, six, maybe long, years longer that's huge. That's what's going to turn the tide is when women say, you know, I'm not I'm tired of being, I'm not I have nothing to be ashamed about. I'm going to tell my story. I know I may not get justice, but you know the rapists, these serial rapists and and most rapes are are committed by a minority of men, these serial predators who each rape at least six women and assault, you know, many others. Well, these guys know how to do it. They get better and better at it. And um so you know, you need you need to you need to sort of think, change the way you look at this. They're not nice guys. They're not just these charming students. Oh, they made a mistake. These guys know what they're doing, and and they need to be removed from society. Mm. Uh, you you said that uh, Missoula and University of Montana is probably better than most. In your research, is there a campus or a state where there are campuses where it's worst? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well. Uh, yeah, I mean there are so I mean university any almost any big uh, university Notre Dame, um, Penn State, Florida State, University of Colorado. I mean it's not just there's even the Ivy Leagues, Harvard, Amherst. They all every college I looked at has problems. It's not you know it's it's something it's about 200 schools now that are being investigated by the federal government. So you know it's just the it's the nature of you know. It's so easy to get – rape is so easy to get away with. That's a huge problem. And it, there's so little understanding. And there's so much misinformation. There's so many rape myths uh, that, you know, no one's taking it – not no one, but it's not being taken nearly as seriously as it needs to be taken. You know, I want to get back to uh, the criminal justice system too. I don't know. It, it seemed that the justice system is taking sexual assault much more seriously. But – you used the word when you were talking about the prosecutor in Missoula. She, this is a woman. You would think that she would be uh, someone who uh, would be a little more respectful and take the the, the claims a little more uh, seriously. But when she was interviewing one of the football players, uh, now this was a detective, had accused a, a male student, quickly reassured him that she was certain he didn't commit a crime because we have a lot of cases where girls come in and report stuff they are not sure about, and then it becomes rape. That's almost like telling the, the, the person who has perpetrated this crime that here's what you have to say. That's right. Exactly right. That was a, that was a, a detective interviewing the accused rapist, telling him, Basically, don't confess. If you just don't confess and shut up, we're going to leave you alone. So be careful. I mean, literally. That's and that was a, a woman detective. That was a right? woman detective. And the prosecutor was a woman. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of theories one can come up with about why this is so. Uh, but, you know, it's all, I talk to a lot of prosecutors who say that they, you know, I thought, oh, you want a lot of females on the jury. And they say, no, we don't. Actually, we find female juries are often are problematic. And it goes back to this really counterintuitive idea that – 
um, if you're a, a juror, a female juror, and you can you know, see this woman while she was wearing uh, the wrong outfit or she was in the wrong place, then you can say, well, the, I would never make that mistake, so I'm not at risk. There's some kind of psychology there going. You just, we don't want to admit how scary the, the world is. So you get a lot of women. It's easier to sort of blame. It, blaming the victim is easy. You know, it, it just is. The, the criminal justice system is set up so, you know, that the the perpetrator gets our sympathy. You know, we don't want to send this nice young man away. The victim, it's easier just to blame her and and not, you know, think about think about it. Uh, well, we're almost out of time. I want to thank you very much for uh, being with us today. What message would you like the reader of your book to take away from it? Take this seriously. If you know someone friend, family who, who you believe has been assaulted, just listen to their story. Believe them. Start by believing. You can always, you know, corroborate it later. But you, you, you just have to, have to be sympathetic. Don't doubt them. Um, take it very seriously. Uh, best-selling author John Krakauer, and uh, it's been an honor to have you in our studio today and talking about your latest book, Missoula, Rape and the Justice System in a College Town. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. The 11th Congressional District features a matchup of two former mayors of Hazleton, Republican incumbent Congressman Lou Barletta and Democrat Mike Mariscano. Congressman Barletta is seeking his fourth term in Congress. The 11th District includes parts of Dauphin, Cumberland, and Perry counties, as well as all of Columbia, Montour, and Wyoming counties, and parts of Luzerne and Northumberland counties. Joining us today is Congressman Lou Barletta. Congressman, welcome to the program. Thanks. Uh, nice to talk to you today. Want to ask this question right up front? You are uh, have been in Congress now for six years. You're seeking your fourth term. Why seek a fourth term? Well, because there's a lot more work to do. You know, I uh, I went to Congress to get things done. Uh, you know, as a mayor for 11 years, and I had started my own business prior to that. So as a business owner, and I saw how Washington, uh, you know, did, didn't understand. You know, uh, it got in the way, created uncertainty, and, and really restricted. Uh, and hurts our economy. But, uh, you know, I thought uh, as a mayor, I was the first person in the country dealing with, with an issue, uh, and it was legal immigration, that the federal government, you know, created this problem. And, and I just felt that they weren't listening to people. They didn't understand what was happening. So, uh, you know, I went to Washington to get things done. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot more work to do. Serving on the three committees that I serve on, uh, which are uh, – there are good committees, Homeland Security, uh, Transportation and Infrastructure, and Education and Workforce. I know the threat to our country, ISIS, uh, it, it, you know, threatens our national security. I, I know the problems uh, on the Education Committee of, of opioid addiction. It's an epidemic uh, that needs, uh, needs something to be done with. And, and uh, I know about our infrastructure. Uh, coming from a family that built roads. So there's a lot more work to be done. So you've been in Congress for six years. Uh, what have you been able to do to tr try to make it easier for, for small businesses? Well, there's so many things. You know, being a small businessman myself before I became mayor uh, and then was demoted to Congress, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I understand, you know, how, you know, government gets in the way. It's, it's A lot of it is uncertainty. You know, business people, people who start a business, they're wired a little, a little differently. They're risk takers, right? They're, they're, they're someone who's willing to take a risk. And, you know, I, I joke, but it's true. My mother and father always used to say, you know, make sure you say your prayers in the morning and make sure you say your prayers before you go to bed. But they, they didn't 
tell me is that if you, you start up a business, you're going to pray on the way to the post office that there's a check there because you don't have money for payroll. <laughs> These people who are willing to take a, bus- a risk and start a business, you know, they'll figure a way how to stay in business, but they just have to know what the rules are. And Washington creates so much uncertainty, whether it's, you know, we, we, ha- we hadn't passed uh, uh, a tax bill, you know, until December where businesses couldn't plan for the next year because they didn't even know what the taxes were going to be. Nobody knew what the effect of the Affordable Care Act was going to be. So you're a business. That's another unknown. Uh, When you don't know what regulation is going to come down on your business, it causes somebody who's in business to pause, to just say, I can't, I could figure out what I know I have to do to survive. But if I don't know what's going to happen, I can't take that risk. And I think that's why our economy has slowed down to to almost a halt. I think that's why businesses aren't expanding. Uh, so I, I have, since I've been in Congress, tried, tried to do everything I can, putting my experience as a business owner in, into rolling back some of these regulations, you know, talking about we need to, do, we need to have tax reform, uh, repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act so that businesses provide health insurance. You know, I started that business, as I said, we started it from scratch, but as soon as we got some employees and the business started growing, I realized that I had to provide a benefit to keep my good employees. I didn't want them leaving. You know, once we trained people, I didn't want them going somewhere else. So I wanted to give them a benefit so that they could stay. I wanted to provide them health insurance, and I did. And it got to the point where we couldn't afford it anymore, and we had to start having the employees pay in. So these are the things that I... I try to do using my experience as a business owner. Let's talk about Obamacare. You just mentioned that uh, you support uh, repealing Obamacare. Uh, First of all, why? And then the second question is, what would you replace it with? Well, you know, I think everybody's finding out why, Uh, you know, in in case you, you know, people haven't enrolled, you know, Pennsylvania now, we can enroll and and see firsthand that this, this sounds, sounded good, but there was no way this, this was going to work. Remember, they told us that, you know, if you like your health care plan, you can keep it, and your premiums will go down by $2,500. Well, that's ridiculous. I don't know how you can insure, you know, all these people who didn't have health insurance, and somehow your premium was going to go down. I mean, let's face it, common sense was somebody's going to pay for the people now that 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 didn't have insurance, and... and I just met a guy yesterday who who handed me his bill, and I, it's in my car, actually. I wish I, I had a, I'd go down the line and, and, and read it to you. His premium went from 1300 to, like, 1700 which, you know, was an increase, but, you know, he, that wasn't what he what he was shocked by. He was shocked by the out-of-pocket expenses on, on his, his new health care plan. So he had a $10 copay. Pay. He now has a $90 copay. So if he goes to the doctor, now he's got to come up with $90. Uh, his de- deductible went from a thousand dollars to to seven thousand dollars. His his family deductible went from two thousand dollars to thirteen thousand dollars. That's unbelievable. This is this. I mean, middle class families, their health care bill may be as m- much as their mortgage or their rent. And you know what's going to happen? You're feeling sick. You may choose not to go to the doctor because you don't have the ninety dollars to pay. Or, you know, you don't have the deductible. 
Yeah. Well, well, Congressman, let me just follow up on that. There are, you know, I think even Democrats, uh, many Democrats out there who would say that there are some aspects of the Affordable Care Act that aren't uh, working. In fact, Hillary Clinton has said she needs to tweak it. Uh, but So what would we replace this with? Sure. So I think you, I think you made a good point. And I, I'm going to start from the beginning. I, I don't think we need to tweak it. That's that's a, that's too kind of a word for what has to happen. You mentioned two good aspects of of the Affordable Care Act that we agree on. That's not a tweak. This is an overhaul. You know, when 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 eighty or ninety percent of something is is undoable, we can take the ten percent or the twenty percent and say, okay, that makes sense. We can do that, and that's exactly that's exactly what we're going to do. You know, if, if you have a pre-existing condition, you shouldn't be denied. We all agree on that, and that's that's going to be part of our our replacement. It's you know, you know, I had four girls that came out of college. Not everybody got a job when they came out of college. So if you um, you know didn't want to stay on your parents' plan till you're 26, so you could get a job, that's good. Another part I think we need you know that that I sort of disagree with. Yes, there are people who didn't have insurance that now have insurance, but but what the Affordable Care Act did. There are people who had insurance that no longer have insurance because companies can't afford it anymore. They're simply not not able to provide that that health insurance. So so we've we've taken this burden and actually added more people who who now don't have insurance or or, or now they have to pay out of pocket, uh, you know, to try to make something work that is unworkable. They tried to force young people to buy health insurance. They would rather pay a fine than than. Than uh, you know, buy a health care plan that they didn't they didn't feel they need. So we, we've we've been working on this for some time now, and it's a it's a, a replacement uh, a plan that will you know allow companies to compete across state lines, allow you to buy insurance across state lines because we all know competition drives down prices. When you have a monopoly, you're gonna you're gonna pay more. Health savings plans uh, is is something that we could do and. And also, as a small business owner, allowing allowing businesses, small businesses, to pull together and and go out and be able to purchase health insurance as a as a as a group, you know, these are ways that we can make health insurance more affordable. And as I said earlier, most businesses want to provide that health insurance because they want to keep good employees. They don't they don't they don't want to to have their employees leave. So if we make it more affordable. More companies are going to insure people. More people will, will get health insurance. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. WITF's election 2016 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg office of the law firm of Saul Ewing, LLP. Our guest during this portion of the program is 11th District Congressman Lou Barletta, Republican, seeking his fourth term in Congress. Uh, Congressman Barletta, the presidential race has become an issue in other campaigns like congressional campaigns. You were one of the first members of Congress to support Donald Trump for president, and you continue to support Trump. Why? Well, you know, I, I, you know again, I, I said I went to Washington to get things done. I haven't been there a long time, but I'm there long enough to know the system is broke. Uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is is that uh, people in Washington talk about things, and, and sometimes to them, talking about it is like getting it done. Uh, you know, that's, 
that's not the way it works in, in, in the real world. I'm as frustrated being there as people are at home uh, about what's happening with our government. You know, look at the problems we have. You know, we're, we're, we're looking at a, a threat to our country, ISIS. When I, when I got on the, when I first got on the Homeland Security Committee, ISIS was about 1,500 people traveling between Syria and Iraq. We had a good opportunity to bomb them then. People wouldn't have even heard of who ISIS is. This is a threat like the world has never seen. There are over 45,000 of them. They're in countries all around the world, and, and, and they walk on, on American soil right here at home. When have we ever had an enemy, you know, walking on, on our land here among us? People want something done. They, they, they want our borders secure. They, they, they want their children to be safe. Our education system is failing. People, we're watching our jobs go overseas. And Washington talks about things. They don't get anything done. They talk about it. And, you know, it, it's frustrating for me. I, I uh, you know, maybe Donald Trump's not a politician, and, and, you know, I'll be the first to admit, you know, sometimes you shake your head when he'll say something uh, that doesn't come out like a, like a slick politician with all the right words to use and the right phrases to say. But, but this is a guy who has spent his life building things, fixing things, finding solutions, you know, when you're in the real world and you have a problem, you got to fix it right away. And you bring people in to, to fix it because you won't stay in business if you don't. When you've lived your life like that, that just becomes who you are. And, and rather than have a slick talker in Washington who can, who can make you feel good by telling you what he knows you want to hear, I would rather have someone that maybe is a little rough around the edges but has spent a lifetime of fixing things and finding solutions and... I saw Washington establishment do everything they can to try to stop him. They were interfering in every way that they can, basically telling the American people, not only does your voice, is your voice not heard here, we don't think your vote matters either. We know better. Well, let me tell you, Washington doesn't know better. And, and, and that's where the problem lies. And when, when he talks about draining the swamp and, 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 and fixing Washington, I agree with him. It needs to be done. And, I was uh, I was one of the first in Congress to uh, uh, to endorse him. That didn't make me any more friends in Washington. I can tell you that. But uh, you know, I I want to get things done. I have children and grandchildren, and I'm worried about our country. Where do you stand now on reform of education, or excuse me, of immigration? Well, as frustrated now, even maybe more than I was when I was mayor ten years ago, because you know, again, I I, I went to Washington and I see that there's not a real there's not a real urgency to do anything about solving the problem of, of illegal immigration other than talking about it. Our borders remain open. When, when I got on the Homeland Security Committee, you know, I brought up the issue of, of people that overstay their visas or, or what's called visa overstays. They weren't even talking about that on, on the committee. And I had to remind them that 50%, nearly 50% of the people that are in the country illegally didn't cross the border illegally. So when you think of illegal immigration, everyone, you know, thinks about the southern border and, you know, Mexicans climbing, you know, climbing over a fence. That's not the reality. People, nearly 50 percent, come here legally. The visa expires and they don't go home and we can't find them. And they come from all over the world, not, not just Mexico. The 9-11 Commission was very clear that this is how terrorists are getting into our country. They come here legally and overstay their visas. I have been a constant reminder to people in Washington that the 9-11 Commission made recommendations to Congress 
Congress passed it, and the president signed it, and, and they have ignored those recommendations. I don't want to face the American people when another September 11th happens and try to explain to them you know, why we haven't secured our borders, why we haven't done anything about visa overstays, why we haven't enforced our immigration laws. When a mayor of a small town has to stand up to the federal government in front of an entire country and say, enough, that, you know, when, when you see the effect that illegal immigration has on a community, on people's jobs, on the hospitals, on the, on the school, it, you know, something is wrong. And I'm going to continue to be a loud, outspoken voice in securing our borders and, and, and fixing the problem of illegal immigration. When you talk about securing the borders, uh, do you support uh, what Donald Trump has talked about, uh, building a wall? Well, I've been, to, I've been to the border a number of times, and I can tell you this, I have, uh, the, the Border Patrol took me out in the desert. I climbed down into a tunnel that was 85 feet underground, 2,500 feet long, went from Mexico and inside a garage that they were renting on the United States side. There were lights in this tunnel. This was, uh, this was the drug cartel. This was how they were bringing drugs into the country. They told me there's at least 65 of these tunnels that that they know of. One actually had rail in it. They're bringing the drugs in by rail. So, you know, I have a, I have a pretty good idea of, of what we have to do to secure the border. A wall will work some places, you know, where you have a high population area where people can cross the border and just, you know, j- just get into a high populated area. A wall will be very effective. There's other places that you could probably use technology where, where there's a desert and the terrain uh, is very rough. You, you could use technology to spot somebody who's coming over the, the border, and you can go out and get them because they're not going to they're not going to disappear into a, a, a town. Uh, you know, there's tunnels. We have to we have to have a biometric entry and exit for for our, for people that come on a visa. We have to know whether or not somebody's left when their visa expires. Any state that is an international airport is a border state. If you can come on a visa and 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 stay here illegally. Then, then you're no different than, than Texas or uh, Arizona or California. What about those who are already here illegally? Uh, you know, the numbers have been estimated at at least 11 million people. Well, if I had a, if I had a, a dime for every time I've been asked that question, you know, I, I would be able to probably fix our national debt. That's the million-dollar question, right? That's the, that's the question that, that, that everybody wants. But, it, but if, you're, if you're serious about fixing the problem, which I am, then, then the answer isn't one that's acceptable to, that, to people that want that, you know, that million-dollar question. What are you going to do with everybody? And, and this is the reason I say that. And it's proven. Anytime people in Washington begin to talk about a pathway to citizenship or legalizing people that are here illegally, and first of all, nobody knows if it's $11 million. How do they know that? How do you know how many people are here? This number has been used since George Bush was president. I, you know, so we don't even know what that number is. But any time we talk about a pathway to citizen, citizenship or legalizing, the Border Patrol says we get a mad rush across the border. Why would you wait if you knew you can get in through our open borders, and once you're here, you're going to be able to stay? We're going to make this problem so much worse by, by answering a question when we don't know, you know, what we're going to be dealing with. So, so here's my proposal. We secure our borders. 
and that includes visa overstays and airports, seaports, and, and, and physical land uh, borders. That's first. We have to make sure that people cannot come into this country illegally through any means, through any, any, any of our ports or, or land crossings. Okay, once you do that, you now have people who can't get in here. You then have to, I think we can all agree, let's, let's, let's send back the people who have committed crimes that we know of. You know, if somebody's here illegally and we know they've committed a crime, I don't think anybody's going to disagree. They should be the first to go. Then let's see what you got. Let's see what this number is. Now, here's my next problem. I have asked this question on the committee. I've asked it to Homeland Security to, to, to get an answer. So the proposal is always, well, we're going to do a background check, a criminal background check on people to make sure that they haven't committed any crimes. I was a mayor, and I know what's involved with doing a criminal background check, and it's, it, it's not an easy task. I, my question is, are we going to have face-to-face -face interviews with everyone that is here illegally so that, so that we can do a proper background check to make sure that we're not letting any drug dealers stay. We don't want to let anybody who's, a, who's committed crimes in other countries or who might be a terrorist. We want to make sure we weed out people that are here. Are we going to do face-to-face -face interviews? And the answer is no. So the background check that they try to sell to the American people as, as a way to get them to agree is you send your paperwork in, and somebody, somebody again, in Washington will look at your paperwork and, and approve or disapprove of it. I know as a mayor, we took down a fraudulent documentation ring where for $1,500 to $3,000, you can get a whole new identity. We could change everything about you. How do we separate the salt from sugar when we get to that point? Mm. And that's where I'm hung up on. I, you know, I, I, I do not want to let people stay here who have committed crimes or who might be a terrorist. You know, we have Americans to protect. Congressman, we were almost out of time, and there were so many other issues I wish we could have gotten to. But I always like to leave uh, the candidate with an opportunity to uh, kind of leave a message for voters. What would yours be? Well, you know, again, you know, we're five days away from the most important election of our lifetime. And, and you know, I believe we can all agree that the future of our country is at stake. And, you know, we have, we have a choice here. You know, some of the failed policies that I feel, you know, have gotten us to, to where we are, where 75% of the American people believe we're going in the wrong direction, or, or you know, we, we can possibly go in a new direction that puts America and Americans first. Uh, you know, I have stood up for what I believed in uh, from the time I was mayor to, to today as a, as a member of Congress, and, you know, I'll continue to, continue to do that as long as the, the people of my district uh, send me there to represent them, and I consider that an honor, and I'm uh, asking for their support. Congressman Lou Barletta is seeking his fourth term in Congress. The 11th district includes parts of Dauphin, Cumberland, and Perry counties, as well as all of Columbia, Montour, and Wyoming counties, and parts of Luzerne and Northumberland counties. Congressman Barletta, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless.
Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Women's Cancer Center, delivering preventive, diagnostic, surgical, medical, and chemotherapy services to women with gynecologic cancer or other conditions related to the reproductive systems. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org slash WCC.